America is the greatest country the world has ever known. We are a nation of immigrants, pioneers, and patriots. Together, we create the bold, beautiful fabric that is America. We are the city upon the hill, a beacon to the world. America is the land of freedom and unlimited opportunity. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. We the people have stories to share, stories to uplift and inspire. You will feel proud, humbled, and blessed to call yourself an American. Chris has a story unlike any you've probably ever heard. Chris was a mortuary affairs marine with a duty that few even know exist. Christian Bustler joined the Marine Corps Reserves right out of high school and was assigned to MP Company C in Dayton, Ohio as an infantry rifleman and was later cross-trained as a Graves Registration Mortuary Affairs Marine. In 2003, his platoon of Mortuary Affairs Specialist was activated to head to Kuwait where he participated in the invasion of Iraq in 2003. In February of 2004, he volunteered to go back to Iraq and was assigned to Weapons Company 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines, where he was wounded in combat operations while fighting against Al-Qaeda terrorist insurgents. After his surgeries, he volunteered once again to go back to Iraq in 2005, but this time as a staff non-commissioned officer in charge of all mortuary affairs operations. With Bustler's leadership, his team had executed four search and recovery missions in active hostile territory, which successfully recovered 13 service members and one civilian contractor originally classified as missing in action. His team also successfully processed and evacuated 150 service members back to the continental United States. His book, No Tougher Duty, No Greater Honor, details his experience as a forward operating body bagger in midst of combat. This is Chris's American Story. Welcome to this episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Chris Bussler. Chris, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Tina. I'm really excited to get started. I am too. And Chris has a very unique story as a veteran. And before I read his book, which is called No Tougher Duty, No Greater Honor, I had no idea. And I don't even know why I had no idea, because it makes perfect sense that there needs to be folks like you who were tasked with the job that you had on deployment. You never think of that side of the story that you're going to share with us. Yes. Um, you know, and the funny thing is, there's a lot of people who were in combat with us who said the very same thing, that they had no idea that this side of the military was there until they needed us to help get their guys home. What started your journey to the military? I grew up in the military. My dad was in the Air Force. And back when I thought that everybody was in the military as a small kid. So everybody I knew was their fathers served in the Vietnam War. Uh, we traveled a lot all over the world when I was a kid, uh, seven years in Japan. My mom's from Thailand. Uh, my dad was stationed over there during the Vietnam War where they met and married and emigrated over here. Been to the Philippines and all over the U.S. So 
Growing up in the military, I wanted to be a part of that. I knew that my grandfather served in World War II in the Philippines with MacArthur and a granduncle that landed on Omaha Beach and fought his way to Bastogne, uh, battled the bulge before he got medevaced out. And uh, I could trace my lineage all the way back to the Civil War where we had a family member who fought for the Union and throughout Ohio. That is quite a legacy. Um, yes, it is a, a legacy of service. And to a bigger cause than what is our own. You know, we are, ex- no one say expected. We're just raised to, to know that's a great place to start your life. It's a great place to learn who you are as a person and to give back to the country that we're from. You were a mail carrier. Yes. Um, I didn't start off as a mail carrier. I wanted to uh, wanted to become a Marine, and I wanted to do all the things that Marines do, but I was a reservist, and, and that was kind of a, uh, a last-minute thing. I was taking all the police tests back in the day. My, my dad worked for the post office, and he said, hey, you know, I know you're taking all these police job tests and stuff, but why don't you try taking a postal test? So I figured, why not? I ended up taking it and I ended up getting hired uh, and I got to work with my dad, which was really cool. And I'm so glad that I did that because I look back as my childhood and I was the knucklehead who was sneaking out and I <laughs> was, you know, me and him were always arguing, you know, just normal teenage years. And uh, when I got hired on, me and my dad became pretty much best friends and I got to know him in a totally different light, not so much as a father and son, but more as man to man. And I got to know him um, and got to know who he was outside of the father figure. Were you called up then as a reservist? Yes, I was. Okay. Um, I'm wondering if you can walk us through to where you were assigned your duty that we will discuss in detail through your book. No problem. I decided to join because I grew up in the military. Uh, I didn't like the idea of traveling, uh, never having a home, because that's how I grew up. And I figured that if I ever have kids one day, I didn't want them to live that life that I got to live and never keep a friendship beyond three or four years. So I decided to go in the reserves And I wanted to shoot guns and blow things up and do all the things I saw on TV when I was growing up. And um, I ended up going in as a uh, a rifleman in the Marine Corps Reserves. So the closest unit to my house was a reserve unit that was a military police company, uh, military police company C in, in Dayton, Ohio. But they had a platoon that was uh, strictly all the oddballs, basically mostly grunts like, like myself, but you had a few other folks that were in there like admin guys, motor T guys, uh, aircraft mechanic, that kind of stuff. But they were accepting infantry guys. So I said, all right, why not go ahead and go there? I had no idea produced it to me when I showed up that they told me, I know you're a grunt, but you won't be doing grunt things in this unit you are going to be doing something called mortuary affairs. And when they said 
that, uh, I was like, well, I didn't join to be mortuary repairs. I don't even like that idea. But I had a car that I drove my 87 Ford Tempo, which got was all beat up thing. So I decided, well, I might as well. Did you have an opportunity to back out of that? It seemed like it was much more of a hassle. At least they, they played it off. It was a much more of a hassle than what it was. And I figured, why not? I'll just stay here. We're not going to go to war. This is after the Gulf War in 1993. So I, I didn't think we'd had a good chance. I thought, why not? I made a, I met a, a couple guys here already, and they seem really cool. And just stay here. September 11th, 2001 happened. And yeah. everything changed. Yes. Um, September 11th happened. And I, at this point, I had already been in for right around eight years, maybe eight, seven or eight years. And, and at that point, I was more of this, one of the senior guys in the unit. And it was, it, it it was something that I knew that we were going to get it called up to do. And I didn't know how war was going to be at that time. I figured that it'll be quick, easy, and that'll be it. Honestly, September 11th happened. I thought they we would get activated to go in support of the recovery efforts in New York City. Uh, and I was surprised that we didn't. At that time, we were the only mortuary affairs unit for the entire Marine Corps. Um, there was maybe 35 of us to support that. And, and we had talked about for many years that we could get one day, get called up to do uh, a FEMA operations and uh, to help out in hurricanes. And we thought that maybe we might get called up to do that. And we were really surprised that we, we did not. Can you give us a synopsis? We'll go into detail, but just give us a synopsis on what the mortuary affairs team does. Okay. At the time, we really didn't know how to train for war. We were using World War II manuals that was more of a broad uh, instructions on how to go about clean up in a, like an airplane crash when the airplane crash was the World War II style of, of airplanes. So when they crashed, they hit the ground. Most of them are in huge pieces. Um, mostly how to plot graves, because back then it was called graves registration. Uh, this is before they had the, the technology to take the fallen from theater and move them over here to the US. And um, back then in World War II, they would build big cemeteries and guys that were doing my job would do all the category, uh, you know, the categorize that this person, we believe this person is this person based upon this name tapes, his dog tags and a witness statement, personal effects and inter them in that country. So later on, we would have to go back and get them. But uh, as technology moved on, we were now moving the guys via uh, you know, C-141 or other, any other kinds of, of jet aircraft to get them back over here. So we train mostly on the old school stuff and not really what, what we were going to get prepared to do for the invasion of Iraq. So we really didn't know how 
to prepare ourselves besides the old school stuff. We basically hope for the best, (laughs) expect the worst, and uh, roll with the punches. Your duty then was to go in, collect the remains of the fallen, to help identify them, prepare their bodies or what was left, unfortunately, to bring back to the States. Right. We didn't figure that out until two weeks before we left to go to war. We came down with a curriculum, streamlined all the World War II stuff and came in, went down to, uh, let's see here, Marietta, Georgia, trained 150 Marines there, went up to Anacostal Navy Yards in D.C., trained uh, another 150 uh, there. And then we end up going over as one of the first units to uh, help establish the bases in Kuwait in February of 2003. How bizarre is that that you're working out of a World War II manual to begin with? Honestly, we thought that that was the, you know, the gospel truth. We really didn't know what to expect. Wow. That the war, the technology moving on, our, our aircraft moves at a much faster rate than what they did back then. The equipment that we would uh, be working in, like burned out vehicles, that they sometimes would totally melt. You know, back then there were all steel vehicles. The vehicle would blow up. They would have uh, mostly the remains that are still inside and easier to collect. Where ours was just the where you have guys that are totally encased in in uh, molten aluminum that had uh, totally encased them into this big pile of slag metal we had no idea to expect we were expecting wounds that were a lot lighter than that what we were actually seeing uh, especially by my third tour when things were where ieds became gigantic and you were taking uh, remains and spreading them out within 100 yards of yard pattern let's get into your book chris is that okay absolutely I asked Chris if I could read different passages from the book that really impacted me, and he can comment on those and add as needed. This first one is from March 25th, 2003, and this really stuck to me because of the situation you were in and the patriotism that you felt. When the sun rose the next day, I remember looking at another vehicle belonging to our convoy. From that truck flew an American flag, crisply snapping in the wind. And I thought to myself, what a most beautiful sight to see, to stand up in the mud, covered in filth, exhausted from the fight northward, and see something so familiar to us all with a brand new perspective. It felt like the coming of a new day. It added to my realization of being part of something so real, something so big and feeling like a champion for freedom, enabling a repressed people to climb out of the pit of despotism, an unfamiliar feeling welled up in my chest as I looked around at my fellow Marines. We were sent here to represent America in war. We were challenged by the enemy and we survived to see our nation's flag hoisted on muddy ground that we fought for. It was something truly beautiful, and I was happy to say that I was here to witness it. Conjures, uh, I, I still can 
just look back and see that moment all over again that you really don't realize how beautiful that flag is until you've been put in situations like that that you know that there are people whose job is to go out and hurt people the the fedayeen saddam that we were looking for you know and, and we were warned about when we were in that area and how they would round up civilians and force them to fight us. And if they didn't, they would, they would gun down their kids in the streets. We were warned about the Saddam, the Fidian Saddam, who, whose job was to go out and they're basically the death squads that they were rounding up civilians and trying to get them to go fight us. And you would see you know, if they refused that, they would gun down their kids in the middle of the street and you'd hear about all these guys and that was their job. And, and you'd look at that flag and you would look and you would know that we were the polar opposite of that lifestyle, which is not a good, even that oppression. They don't know anything beyond that life. What we represented was different. And it made me feel, you know, that we were doing work that needed to be done to give these people hope. I always love picturing flags, like not crisp flags, but flags in that type of situation where it's, it's dirty. This flag represents what all of you went through at that time in the surrounding, just a flag that's been through so much and everything that you had been through and you're coming out on top. I think it's beautiful. It was a very poignant moment. And it's something that, like I said, when you read that, that passage, it just brought me straight to that moment again of first time realizing that the actions that we were doing was in the betterment of other people that know nothing but despotism and, and pain. And um, that we were giving them, with our presence, we were deterring the Saddam, the, the Fidiyin Saddam from getting them, you know, killing the kids and stuff. So, I know as politics move on, it's hard to imagine that and with everything that's transpired from that day, but from that day and myself, that made me feel so good to be in that moment that, oh, you were helping people that didn't have a future. And while we're talking about helping people, you mentioned about uh, the medical staff that was out. Um, let's see, I think this might be, um, was it when you were hit? I think, let's see, the medical staff was highly rehearsed at taming the confusion and staying focused. Is this when you were injured? Not yet. This is before. Let's see. Um, trying to figure out when this is, but let me just talk about the medical staff here. The medical staff was highly rehearsed at taming the confusion and staying focused. They darted around each other, grabbing medical supplies, filling out paperwork and rendering first aid to each of us wounded guys. 
Like a dance of highly choreographed medical professionals, their battle was to ease the suffering of the maimed and sustain the heartbeat. They were honorable and gallant guardians of life, slapping away the hands of death daily. They won most battles, but lost some. For those who tirelessly heal the, the wounds of broken warriors, and for those who selflessly dedicate themselves in pursuit of ending the pain and suffering, you will always be honored to be in their presence with such nobility. Yes. You know, throughout my time of being in the reserves, we always looked at the, the corpsmen who were with us, uh, their Navy corpsmen. And so we always looked at them as getting out of doing the hard work because they're always, <laughs> they're always have paperwork to fill out or things to, to that fight. I've got paperwork, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, we're not going to go all on that, you know, or they're the guys who are telling us to take Motrin for everything. And we always joked around with them. And, you know, even though that these guys were cool and everything, but we didn't see that they were doing the hard work. But when you see these guys, doing the work in in those environments where you see guys getting hurt. It was like a choreographed dance that these guys knew what to do and they were working around each other, like they fit. Where one guy was doing the paperwork, the other guy was administering uh, care uh, to these guys and it was flawless how efficient that they worked together. They weren't squeamish at all. And they got in there and they tried their best to help. And those of us who were wounded. What had happened to you that day? This is on my second deployment. And I I was assigned to uh, weapons weapons company, 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines, um, a pretty tough outfit for the Marines. And our job was to train the Iraqi police um, in an area called Haditha, Iraq. So we had been there a few weeks and we had done uh, several patrols throughout the area. Uh, This one particular day, we were supposed to make contact with the Iraqi police to assess what we had, what kind of training, what kind of equipment, you know, basically to to draw plans on how to train them. But we were walking in at 1030 in the morning and it looked like it was a bad scene to begin with that people were bringing their kids in, slamming the doors, that people were standing up on rooftops. It was bad. I mean, we were expecting all the things like machine guns, rocket propelled grenades, hand grenades being tossed at us, you know, an actual attack. And we didn't think of an IED being placed in the middle of the city. Was We had no idea. We haven't even trained for that. Uh, We knew they were out in the desert, out on the main highways, but not in the middle of a city. And this is early 2004. Uh, So we were walking in, and I remember seeing all of this trash at a base of a telephone pole. And all this trash that was on, you know, this little road, uh, all of it was covered by with dust, except for at the base of the telephone pole. Mm. But I was towards the end of the, the patrol going in. And I figured these guys, it, you know, it didn't blow up uh, at the beginning of the patrol and these guys know what they're doing. So I figured just keep on going. 
and about 15 feet away from it when it blew up. I found out later that it it should have uh, it should have vaporized me, but the guys from the back end of the patrol said it blew up instead of out, so they buried it too deep. Uh, it ended up destroying my radio. Uh, cut my handset, my handset for my radio would cut the cord on that. It picked up my antenna that was just right on just an inch or two away from my head, took that off and made it embed itself in my gunnery sergeant's flak jacket across the road from me. And it picked me up and threw me uh, off the road and landed on my head. But uh, it ended up wounding several of us in that tail end of that patrol. But if I look at it as if it was written in the stars to happen, the best outcome happened, that we all survived it. Uh, we are all in good conditions where it took off part of my leg, uh, and a little chunk out of my calf. I still got shrapnel next to my femoral artery. The same thing happened to one of the guys' triceps, uh, that it was a big hole that went through his tricep and, and uh, he ended up recovering from that. Another guy had a piece of shrapnel went through his nose and lodged in his skull. Um, another guy, our corpsman, ended up looking like he took all the small fragmentation from it um, on the back of both arms and the back of his, uh, his buttocks and his legs. But, you know, like I said, if it was written the stars to happen, it was the best outcome that happened from it. How did it change your perspective on your duty when instead of KIA, you heard the term angels? So fast forward to my third deployment and I'll go back to do the mortuary affairs again. I did the initial mortuary affairs during the first, my first tour uh, during the invasion and now it's a few years later in 2005, we go over and we've always called them remains. And I didn't really grasp the emotional connection until we ended up replacing the guys there before. And it was our unit that we had trained back in January of 2003 the one that we went down to Marietta, Georgia, to train these guys, uh, we're replacing them. So we knew most of the guys. And when they said that they call the fallen angels, it made perfect sense. That going back to my second deployment, when I got blown up, that was one of the first incidents that had happened to that unit that I was attached to. So I was one of the very first guys who got wounded and came back and to do my surgeries and was in limbo to what they were going to do with this, send us back into combat or send us back to our reserve unit. So I stayed out there for a few months. And in, the, in that time frame, the first uh, push into Fallujah had happened, the April push and um, Operation Vigilant Resolve. And I found out that a lot of the guys I had served with had gotten killed in that operation. So now I looked at them as, as um, I had a more of a connection to them. And so 
Which you have to be careful of, right? Right, you do. But it made perfect sense to call them angels because that's how we thought of these guys that we knew that don't look at them as, as you know, you where you're trying to distance yourself because the more respect you can give them, they deserve that respect. So to call them angels was to give them the honor that they deserve, you know, and it, 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 it helped us put them in, in our minds that, that we could be able to not think of them as just dead. We looked at them as that they deserve all the respect that, uh, that they could get and that we can one day be able to think of them as angels and be able to heal from the job that we were supposed to be doing. Um, it also let us to be able to discuss what was going on over the radios without having to be too cryptic it was respectful to the fallen it was respectful to their family members and the unit that had that had made that loss and it was respectful for everybody who was involved you feel a great deal of responsibility for these angels to send back a huge part of that is the american flag which is placed over the casket. What is the bustler method and how did that come about? Back in 2004, a lot of the guys I had known who was with 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines had gotten killed in Operation Vigilant Resolve in Fallujah. So I ended up, is now in charge of the very same building that they were in, that they went through. I had known these guys. So on the first day of replacing the guys, we were watching them for one week and, you know, and then the second week they would watch us. So the very first day of, of watching them, we had a um, U.S. Army major who had gotten killed out there. He was a, from a reserve unit out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. And the, watching the guys go through and, and do their work, everything was respectful, and the, uh, the flag was in, in danger of touching the ground. And I thought that that was messed up, that it was nothing against the guys that we were replacing. This is just the way it's always been done. And I thought that we could do better. I'm one of those guys that if I notice something my mind just starts clicking and figuring out how am I going to be able to make this better? How can I make this work? I came up with a, a way of ironing and starching the flag. And out of the respect for those fallen. And we came up with a way of tying the cord, the white cord on first, and then tucking the flag in into the cord where there was no danger of it touching the ground. So we would spend so much time working on that American flag that the flag would gleam in the light when you walked around it. We ended up adopting that for our collection point. Everybody that we had processed from like September the 15th until the day we left, we ended up putting that method down and we ended up teaching our other 
Marines that were came, that came in and to replace us in 2006. So fast forward, I get a phone call. Hey, there was a general over in, in Ramstein Air Base, and he was there for a ramp ceremony. And he's seen the first remains that came off the back of the C-141. It was done the old style. Him and his, him and his entourage were there saluting. The second one comes off and it's done the same way. But he said the third one comes off and it's done your way. And from then on, he wanted to let the Marines know who did that, how much it meant to him and his, his guys. He ended up reaching out to the uh, chief warrant officer, uh, chief warrant officer Itis over in Washington, D.C. And she goes, yes, sir, that's that we call it the Bustler method. He started that in 2005. We now teach all of our Marines that we end up doing that. And from then on, we ended up carrying on that tradition. Well, that general goes, well, from now on until the end of the Marine Corps, this is the way that anybody who gets killed overseas, this is how they're going to come home. Eventually, we adopted it, then the Army, then the Navy and the Air Force, they all adopt it. Now it's the standard. Um, if you see guys coming home from, you know, recently over in Afghanistan, uh, those guys did a really good job with those flags, with the 13 that were killed over there. And it's just now the, the standard practice. Um, I didn't do it for any kind of accolades or anything. I just thought that it was something that needed to be done. Their family members would appreciate that we would go out of our way to make sure every detail was done with the utmost respect and dignity to honor their loved one. Let's talk a little bit about what you were dealing with. And it's gruesome because the amount of destruction that can happen to a human, unless you see it firsthand, I don't even know how you can imagine it. A couple of the things that you mentioned, number one is you didn't even realize this person was deceased. They were completely wrapped their head my first tour yeah in in the bloody gauze and you and you first thought well how are they breathing and then you understood they were dead and that was the only way they were keeping that head together so there's that and then you talk about which I read this to my husband Chris because I couldn't even believe it I had no clue when you're talking about so this is um, a Black Hawk crash site, and you are talking about how the human body, when it's subjected to intense heat, the blood can caramelize and bubble into a substance resembling burned sugar, and that fats become greasy residue, flesh resembles burnt rubber or wood, and bone can flake and splinter into tiny pieces. How do you deal with that, especially the first time that you see something that grotesque? How do you not lose it? Um, I think that we were looking at it as we were going to do the best job that we absolutely could to take care of these guys that I've always said that when we handle remains we're not working for the people who actually pay us uncle sam pays us but when we are working directly with remains we're working directly for the families they would want us to go that extra mile to, to take care of them 
to take care of their loved ones. And when you have that in front of you, it's easy to remove all of those grotesque feelings and all that kind of stuff, that aversion to the stuff that you're doing. It's easy to, to take it and put it to the back of your mind because you're looking that you want to get this guy or girl everything that you possibly can to get them home. You're looking at the carnage. How do you see that as a person when it doesn't, nothing even resembles a person? How? It's hard to, it's hard to recognize what is and what isn't. Right. But the respect is there regardless to separate the, the components of the helo or helicopter, you know, the stuff, the equipment and stuff, and you get to determine what is actual uh, remains and uh, as opposed to all the other stuff that's when the respect comes in and you know that you are the one that is getting that guy home that they they died in service to our country so you do your absolute best to get as close to 100 percent of that person you're dealing with such destruction yep like with the Jeep, also a Jeep, you're talking about there was a Humvee and about a torso and the back half of a skull minus any fragments of facial. Yep. When do you know that you're done? Because you're dealing with such destruction. How can you hope to ever collect all the remains? When do you know that you're finished? See, you that's where we go down to like in that one particular Bradley that you had just mentioned about the guy that was um, half of him was still in the, in the vehicle. And, you know, where, when we showed up this particular scene, this is on my third deployment, um, which actually today is the day is the anniversary of going out there and doing the recovery. Um, one of the days that we go out there. And so we were literally totally into submission, you know, breaking it apart, trying to get down. And we, when we thought we were done, they said they were missing three um, U.S. Army soldiers. We go in and we find the remnant pieces of three guys um, it was a couple weeks later that we found out that when we thought that we were done, we were not done. There was one that was still missing. To answer your question, you really don't know. When you think you're done, really in those catastrophic scenes, you try to get as best as humanly possible to get the, you know what pieces you can. And that particular uh, event, this guy had literally, um, his remains was uh, encased in solid metal. And he, his remains went through the, the blast hole and solidified underneath the, the vehicle itself. I tried to imagine that as you were describing it in your book, which you do a very good job of. Um, and I still, like, I can't, I still can't picture in my head how that happened. It's still, I don't understand. 
I guess it's just because I don't understand the wreckage that severe that you can't find a person in there with a person that's been so, his body's been so badly destroyed. I even still today, I can't envision it. Um, You know, most people over here in the U.S., they think, all right, when, you know, when somebody passes away that they're in one piece and that there's most time you're going to get a open casket funeral. Um, There's maybe the guys that I was working with, the uh, remains, I'd say maybe a good 30 to 40% of them were probably viewable. Um, and now, of course, as time moves on, it was the, the number might be greater, but as time moves on, I think more and more of the, the, the blast injuries that we were seeing and, and maybe the number is, is lower than, but in my mind now, uh, the, the majority of those guys who got blown up and burned up and stuff, they're not in one piece. When you're dealing with uh, burns and stuff like that, you're going to, you may get guys where, where we, it's one in, for instance, we thought that a guy had vaporized. We, because of the blast, but then the fire was so hot uh, in that one particular case. When we were going back and forth, and this, this recovery took about five weeks. We had no idea that he wasn't liquefied. He was um, burned down to the bone. And that's where they found him when he was totally encased in a bubble beneath the vehicle, which was probably about four inches tall, maybe. This is nightmarish. I'm trying to understand how you can deal with this. And not have it haunt you. It does haunt me. To put it on that flip side, these are guys that know exactly how dangerous it is to ride in those Bradleys every day. Those guys are, were much braver than me because they had to go into those vehicles and ride into harm's way every single day. And those guys were Army guys who had 15-month deployments. They were much braver than me. I, I had to deal with the aftermath and it's that respect that pulls you through to get the job done and to play CSI agent or to play, you know, uh, I like to, to name it as combat coroner, but that bravery of them to be out there, to go outside the wire every day and know that their buddies just got killed in, in those situations, those guys are much braver than me. There were two deaths that affected you more than any others. You knew these people personally. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. It was in towards the end of November. You you know, you try to prepare yourself for the worst and you hope for the best that there was a chance that you could one day process the people that you know there is no uh real safe place no matter where you are over there that even though that you may be on a base relatively safe there's always danger that lies around anywhere between mortars rockets um 
you know, suicide bombers, all that kind of stuff, or even accidents. I always tried to prepare myself the best I could for the day that I may have to process one of my own guys or a friend, someone I know. Um, but I never thought it would ever happen. And no matter how hard you, how much you think you're prepared for that moment, you really don't know what it's like until it happens. And all the feelings, you know, the X factor that happens that will pop up and throw you for a loop. You know, I thought I was prepared. And I think that's the, the probably the main theme of the book going throughout. I said in my first appointment, you know, we prepared ourselves physically for the job, mentally, spiritually, but we never prepared ourselves emotionally. But how can you? until you put yourselves into those, those situations. And that's when you start to find how tough a tough job actually is until you put those into those situations. What made it worse was that you care for those guys. You, you care deeply for them. So, and you have that immense respect of mine who had gotten killed uh, was the EOD. Um, he was in charge. He was their staff non-commissioner uh, officer in charge. And so I looked at him as, you know, this guy is on top of his game, the best he's ever going to be in his field. And, you know, I looked at him as a, as a cowboy, not so much as a cowboy of go out and shoot him up, but a cowboy as in a strong quiet type hero of the movie, um, you know, the strong character that everybody looks up to. And it was a V-bed, so it was a car bomb. And you see the reactions of the grief on everybody's faces of those who were there at the time when it happened. Um, and with the unit that we were close to, I mean, it adds a whole different dimension to the grief. Did you have to process one of them? Yes, we had okay. to process him. Okay, that's what I thought. When you go through, any, we have to make sure that there is no embedded um, ordnance because sometimes bombs will blow up and you have bullets are embedded in the remains or, you know, we had to go find his dog tags, couldn't find him. And, you know, you still have to annotate the uh, serial numbers that are on the ballistics plates. That particular one, it was just so... It was the worst out of anybody I have ever seen. How do you remove yourself mentally so you can do that? Um, you got to emotionally. You just have to put your nose to the grindstone and do the best job you can, and you'll have to deal with the aftermath when you come to it. I always had to keep these guys, their heads in the game. I had to keep them ready to go on another search and recovery mission if we had to. There's always reports to, to write. There's always things to distract you. You bury stuff like that because you don't, one thing, you don't want to show weakness in front of your troops and you don't want to show weakness to your leadership where they start second guessing you. And you still have a job to do. Um, the best thing we could do to help us emotionally 
was to be able to send him off the best way we possibly could to know that we did our absolute best um, in respect of him, who he was, but also the, uh, the sacrifice their families were soon to make when they are notified. You mentioned that a few times through your book about the anguish that you feel, that you felt knowing, you know now at that time, but there's going to be a knock at some people's doors. Yeah. Dealing with this job is multifaceted that, you know, you're doing the best job to take care of them. And I know I probably wore out that, that saying, I still feel connected to those people that we had processed. I was just a, a small part of getting them home. And we did a job that maybe 99.9% of the families would ever, never even know that we even existed, uh, that we had this little part to play. But we hope we did everything in our power out of the respect for them and their loved one that you know we did the best job we could absolutely do. Chris, how do you deal with today everything that you saw, everything that you felt because that doesn't go away. Um, when I got home, I had a really, really rough time with dealing with all of that pain. It seemed like I started seeing guys who hadn't gotten killed or uh, just the threat of us getting killed as we're going doing these missions uh, to recover them, to get them home. And just all of that stress adds a little bit of water to that glass. And when I came home, my glass was overfilled. It was spilling out. And it, what was spilling out, I tried going back to being a mailman. All of this stuff that was stuck in my head and I was reliving over and over and over I wouldn't say every night, I would say in my mind, every five minutes, the best way I could explain it is like a drug addict who is trying to come off of the, the drugs and they have that addiction. It's, it's gone uh, cyclic and it's goes I know, like, I need the drugs. I need the drugs. I need the drug, you know? And that to me, that's how my brain worked, but my brain wouldn't say drugs. My brain would say death. It was death, death death, death, death. And it literally was destroying my life. When I was delivering mail, I felt like I was back here on patrol again. And when I got blown up, I had a car that was driving past me. So try delivering mail without cars driving past you. Or being stuck in a situation where you have somebody upset that the person who was there the day before uh, delivered the wrong mail and they're yelling at you. And I just couldn't deal with that stress. I was having flashbacks. Um, one day, they asked me to go deliver mail to these apartment complexes. And I didn't know them. And so when I walked in there, I was in a hurry. I opened up the wall box and my foot hit a thing that was in a bag and it wobbled like that and the 
first thought in my head was that was a head and a bag. And, and it freaked me out. I ended up breaking my keychain uh, that I was still attached to the, the wall box and I went out and I couldn't control myself and I started crying. And then I talked to um, a uh, VA, I called up my VA uh, lady and she talked me down. I looked in the bag and it was a, a phone book. It was just an instant connection of just seeing the wobble of that that took me back to moments that I tried to suppress. I couldn't live like that, you know. I tried to, when you first go in into the morning at the post office and you have to put your mail up in order. So I would reach down and grab the mail, feel the crunch in my hands of working with burned people. And I couldn't touch anything. And, but I still felt the pressure that I, I still needed to earn a living for my wife and my daughter and as a, a suck it up as a Marine that there's been people who've done this kind of stuff who came before and they still, they still move on and live a full life. But I couldn't, I couldn't put up with that stuff, you know, and I just got to a point where I just quit. I, I just couldn't sleep at night. Fast forward, you know, I was an alcoholic for many years just because that was the only way I knew how to sleep it was I would either drink myself into uh, a stupor or, you know, and I found out that that's a double-edged sword that when you drink that much, I would drink myself sober, but I was drunk enough. And now all the stuff I tried to avoid was right in front of my face and I had no, no defense against it anymore. So it took me years and years uh, of therapy and finding the right people before I ended up uh, getting better. I was talking about this one, in, this one moment last night with somebody, a hunting trip out to Wyoming and it was my first day out there. We're hunting for antelope. We were riding four wheelers, trying to find out where they're coming at, where they're hiding and stuff. And we rode probably 50 miles that day. And the guy was going to, my guide was wanting to make a phone call to his wife. So we rode up to the tallest hill um, in the area so he can get a phone connection. And when we got up there, it was probably one of the most beautiful sights I had ever seen that you could see from horizon to horizon. And the sky was just a beautiful blue. You could see a whole storm system going through this valley with lightning bolts dropping and, and torrents of rain coming down. But all around it, you could see the sheen of all of the sage grass around us. And then in that sheen was all the colors of the rainbow. And then the sky just opened up above us and the sun came down. And it was like in that moment, it was like God just said, you deserve this moment. That you have been through a lot. And 
everything in that scenery was so beautiful. And it was one of the most beautiful things. There's no picture, no painting could ever capture that. And it was that moment that felt like it was a gift. That everything is okay. That I, that everything we did to take care of those guys, that it was appreciated. And at that moment, that instead of wanting to die, that now... I have a story that a lot of people would, would appreciate that those people who had gotten killed over there, they need somebody to carry their names on. That you're not really gone until your name is no longer spoken. And so I find it that's in my duty now to tell the world that they shed their life's blood, not only for freedom and stuff like that, but, but the America as what we, as what we want it to be, you know. I kind of reinvented myself at that moment and it was just like, they like, the storm clouds was lifted and now I tried to move on the better I could live my life to be there for other Marine or other people who served and to be there for my family, to be there, the better I can live my life is to give their sacrifice uh, a worth. They sacrificed for me so I can come home. They sacrificed for us all. That's how I honor them nowadays is to be, the best man, husband, father, friend, you know, citizen as I possibly can. Two questions for you then. How are you doing today? And when you look back at everything you went through, was it worth it? Are you, I don't know, grateful? Maybe. Are you grateful for those trials that you went through? Um. The first question, I'm doing well today, a lot better than I was when I came home, um, 180 degrees better, uh, totally flipped around in, in the direction I was heading. Uh, um, I think that moment really opened up the gates to the rest of my life, and it really opened up a want to get everything out. And that's where the book came in. And the book helped me be able to put things into perspective and to help me, I would say 100% find peace. I think it's peace is something that you just strive for, but it's made where I can bear the weight um, and be able to put things aside and, and focus on my life. And instead of, you know, Instead of dwelling in that cycle of death, 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 it, it still crosses my mind. I'm doing well. I try to participate in as many uh, veteran uh, organizations, try to get my story out there, because I know there's other people who live and are living inside that, that cyclic rate of, of, of all that 
ugly stuff in their heads. And I want people to know that, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. And it's not the train that's going the other way. There's ways of finding peace, living with what happened, you know, that, yeah, that pain, it does hurt. But that pain of, of losing friends and, and being a part of all of that, that's a way of honoring them, you know, and carrying them on. And I don't know where exactly where I'm going with this, but. That's okay. But um, what was the second question again? Well, you've gone through a lot. You've seen a lot of things. You've had a lot of trials dealing with it. So. Are you grateful you made that decision to be a part of the Marines, even though you saw horrific things and experienced some horrific things? Does the positive outweigh the negative? You know, when when I first came back home, it seemed the opposite. It seemed where I, I hated being who I was, the job I had to do when I was over there. I hated that there was people all motivated to get in those situations. And, but now after this journey I've made emotionally and spiritually and going through my own difficulties and stuff, I look back upon the service that we did and I'm glad that it was me that had to be put in those situations. I can't speak for anybody else, you know, in, in, in the unit that we were with, but I can speak that I'm glad that I got to do it because I know that we gave 100% of everything we had to get them home because those guys deserve the best. We gave them our, our best that so they can get, you know, they could have that closure. It was tough doing the job but the job itself was nowhere near as tough as coming home. Over there, you had to deal with the aftermath and you had to deal with what happened in front of you, but you still had a job to do and you still had to keep your head in the game. When you come home, you unpack from all that. The hard part was coming home. I'm glad that I have been, I don't know if it's fate or whatever, but how I ended up in this position where I can share my story and hopefully encourage others to, to help find peace in their own lives. They deserve that. They serve this country honorably. They serve this country and put themselves in front of unspeakable things. Not just once, not just twice, but multiple guys you know, in multiple years. And I met this one guy who worked in, in special forces he had 12 deployments and you know a lot of these guys know exactly what they're getting into when they go back over for multiple you know multiple deployments it takes a special kind of bravery to be able to place yourself in those situations be able to to do these things for people that you never met So I'm glad that I can get my story out there to help those folks, um, if not be able to, you know, to help inspire them to be able to find healing. 
Well, you know, Chris, I have heard from many of my guests that the reason that they serve so many deployments is so that someone else doesn't have to. I've heard that over and over again. That is the caliber of people that you are associated with. That is the caliber of people that you are included, that you are one of them. Where can we find your book, No Tougher Duty, No Greater Honor? You can find it on Amazon and on Kindle, and uh, you can have it read to you on Audible. Uh, The narrator on Audible is the same guy who read American Sniper. He's a uh, Audi winner, uh, which is Audi is the voice actors, like their Oscars or their Emmys or whatever. He's won it a few times. Um, Very, very, he's a great guy too. He's, uh, me and him are friends. You know, so, but. Uh, where would you like to see this book go? Oh, wow. Where I would love for it to go is I think that there's a lot of lessons that can be learned. I would like for it to go onto the uh, professional Marine Corps reading list. So there'll be Marines in the future, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road that would be able to learn about combat not so much about the strategies and tactics, but more of the loss and the emotional side of combat and how to learn from our lessons that we learned. Because I don't want the the guys recovering remains in the future to have to work off of World War II manuals. They can learn off of what we learned the hard way. And I think it's the goal of every Every author, especially those who talk about their own stories, that they have fantasies of seeing that on the big screen one day. Who would play you, Chris? Oh, wow. (laughs) I got people who say The Rock. Ah, there you go. (laughs) But I don't think so. Um, Somebody who's, you know, half Asian like me, because you don't really hear military stories about half Asian guys, you know, and that'd be a nice nod to, uh, you know, some actor over there in Los Angeles who would like to play my role. But my wife had said, you know, she wanted uh, Jennifer Aniston to play her. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, right? So, but I think it, not so much of the big screen, but I think the book would be better served if it was on like a miniseries like Band of Brothers. I love that one. Or something like that on that line where you can see the the graduation of who I was at the beginning of the book, the motivated guy who was who was there eager to serve his country. And at the very end of the book, I was just spent that I was done and I knew I was done. I think your book is great for an average American if they really want to understand because you touch on many different aspects, not just from your side, but just what all of you go through. Yeah. And it's important for us to understand because I don't think a lot of us understand the extent of what you go through when you're serving. You know, when I wrote the book, and, and publish it. I wanted to include the things that people who never lived that life to be able to identify with. 
So I started writing with the five senses. What did it smell like? What did it taste like? What did it feel like? What did it, what, what did it sound like? You know, and, and sometimes, you know, I wanted to get those hairs on the back of your neck that would stand up when you were looking at a situation that your gut feeling is telling you this is bad. I wanted to in, include those things so the people who never served would understand what was going on. But also, I wanted to write enough stuff where the other people who may not have done my job, but lived in, they served over there, could be able to hand this book off to their family members and say, yes, when he wrote about this, this is what it was like where I was at. That maybe my book would be able to help another family be able to heal, that they can open up lines of communication between um, you know the husband and the wife, or the, the the children and the father, or the children and the mother, because combat, you know, it's it's something that it, the news gets wrong, the movies get wrong, and how do you explain something? It's like the way I I I can explain it is, it's like explaining color to a blind guy there's no frame of reference until you can look at it and know it. Then you know what the color purple is. You know what the color red is. And I think combat's the same way because when a certain sound happens or a certain smell, you're brought back to that very moment, that traumatic event happened. And I wanted to be able to be able to convey that to the reader of what it's like to be in those situations emotionally and through all the senses and tactically and uh, what the stakes were. I was only a few pages in when I understood that you were very descriptive and I appreciated that. I really get into that and it helps pull me in. I, I really appreciated it. What does America mean to you? Hmm. I think America at different points of my life has meant many things as being a a kid who grew up in the military, who saw it as home with my mother coming here, becoming a a U.S. citizen and being exposed to different parts of life and things you don't see here in the United States. I think it's a place that, like they say, it is a it's something that you would strive for. It's something that is good, something that that people sacrifice not only because they're told to, but something that wow. Don't overthink it. Uh, you know, I should have wrote this down. I'm glad it's made you think. It has made me, it means different things at different ports of my life. But at this point, I think America now is what it's all that's good in the world. You know, you can take those kids that we saw on the side of the road when the Fidian Saddam was wanting to, to kill and, you know, 
they we're glad that we don't have people like that the death squads here in the united states that you know you don't have kids afraid like that the united states is a is a force for good it means hope it means that people across the world can be put in that situation like i did with those kids again that they look up at us and see that there were people here willing to fight and and possibly die to make sure that they can grow up in a place where absent of all those evil things in the world. There's a lot of things that you know, I think we can communicate better, but I think stories like this and others needs to be better known the kids of tomorrow will know how precious life is, how precious our freedoms are, and how precious this place that we can call in America, that we call home, could be. I should have came up with a better answer. <laughs> but. Chris, that is a great answer. That's a great answer. Thank you for sharing your American story. Uh, thank you for having me. And that is a wrap for season three. Many thanks to Chris and all the other amazing, wonderful, phenomenal, fantastical patriots and warriors that have shared their stories with us this season. As a reminder, you can pick up Chris's book, No Tougher Duty, No Greater Honor on Amazon. If you want to help out this podcast, share your comments, leave a review, leave a rating, subscribe, and let your family and friends know about this podcast. We the People, Our American Story is one of the best podcasts out there. And I can say that not because of me, but because of the people who agree to come on and share their inspiring stories with us. And we need to hear these more than ever. Season four begins the first week of March, and you will not want to miss one single episode. We'll see you then.